if you give me a blank piece of paper and say, write a book or a song, I, I'm not sure what I would do. But if you tell me, gee, we could sure use a, a song and we haven't had much reggae on the show. And wouldn't it be funny if Cookie Monster sang some reggae and we need a song about letter J desperately, then I know exactly what to go do. Yeah. And I can still be really silly doing it. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. And welcome to the Storytellers Network podcast. I'm Dan, and I am a believer in story. It holds so much power, whether it's personal connections or it's business connections, storytelling. It's what separates us from all other life on earth, uh, even Muppets, but not really. You'll find out why uh, in just a minute. Before I get to that, though, a quick reminder that my website has great resources available on how to tell your story better, uh, past interviews, contact information for me. Visit thestorytellersnetwork.com for all of that. So I mentioned Muppets, and it's because today you get to hear, whenever you're listening to this, you get to hear from Christopher Cerf. Uh, he's an American author, composer, lyricist. He's a voice actor, a puppeteer, a record and television producer, and so much more. He mentions in, in our conversation he's had um, not 17 careers, but just one. But 17 Careers gives you an idea about how much Chris does. Uh, he is known for his musical contributions, especially to Sesame Street, also for co-creating and co-producing the award-winning PBS Literacy Educational Television Program, Between the Lions, and for his humorous articles and books for adults. So from kids to adults, you've probably seen some of Chris's work, most likely. Uh, since writing and performing his first song for Sesame Street, Count It Higher, uh, back in 1973 on an early season, uh, Chris has written or co-written over 200 songs featured on Sesame Street and over 300 songs just in general. So absolutely amazing. So much goodness here. If you watched Sesame Street growing up or Between the Lions or you've read Dr. Seuss, you are going to be connected to Chris and I cannot wait for you to hear everything he has to offer. So without further ado, let's get to Chris's stories. Welcome to the Storytellers Network, Christopher Surf. Thank you for taking time to chat with storytellers today, chat with me for the storytellers. Well, thank you, Dan. It's a lot of fun to be here. So, Chris, in, in, in preparing for our interview, um, after Tish Robbie connected us, uh, I was looking through, and it's very interesting to me. I have to believe that you consider yourself a storyteller from maybe day one. Uh, so, first question Do you think of yourself as a storyteller? Uh, I do. I think of myself more as uh, maybe a songwriter and a reading teacher. Mm -hmm. and uh, a person who does silly creative projects, which includes stories, but storytelling is certainly part of it. Yeah, and where do you think that kind of starts for you? I, I wanna get into like how songs and silliness and everything else works with story, but I wanna know from you, Chris, where does that start for you as a storyteller? I mean, how did I get started doing it? Or yeah, where does, yeah, where does that begin for you? Well, it began really the day I was born, I think, because. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was a publisher. Uh, in fact, he 
helped co-found Random House. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mom worked with Dr. Seuss on beginner books. Mm -hmm. So even since I was a little tiny kid, stories had been a huge part of my life. So I think I learned a lot from them and just came kind of naturally after that. Plus, my father was a big anecdote and joke teller, and he would exaggerate every story and make a story out of everything. Yes. So certainly he was a big influence. Man after my own heart. I have a pun calendar that I create stories from each pun almost daily and annoy my family. And <laughs> it's well, glorious. You know, that's, I, I, as you may know, have written a lot of songs for Sesame Street over the years. Yeah. And a lot of those ideas came from puns as well. Oh, I love that. Uh, my dad's name was Bennett Surf, by the way, and he, he was an inveterate punster as well as a publisher. So I love that. We have a lot in common already. <laughs> yes. So that so that you had almost I mean, you had no choice but to be a storyteller with that kind of a background. Did you think of other things that you wanted to do in life? Or was that like did you just know from early on that you were going to be involved in creating in some way? I think I knew that. I didn't necessarily think about it that concretely. Hmm. But it just struck me that that's what I was going to do. So, so I grew up, of course, with Sesame Street, um, whether Count Higher or other songs you did with Chrissy and the Alphabets, hey. uh, <laughs> right? Um, how, how was that for you? Take us back to that time as that storyteller, whether it's how you got into it or whether how it's felt. I just want to kind of explore that for a little bit here. I mean, Sesame Street is so iconic and you're back there on season five. So let's start there. Did you even know what this was going to be in the future, that this was like going to be part of our social fabric back on season five? I don't think, I got there in season one, actually. No, I, oh. didn't write, I didn't go there to write songs. That's why my songs are a little later. But uh, Cat at Hire, I think, was earlier than season five, actually. But it might have been two or three. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, I got there because I was working on beginner books myself and working at Random House. And um, I thought that uh, Sesame Street should do books with Random House. Uh, right as the show was starting, I was friends with a lot of the people that were putting the show together, notably Joe Raposo, the music director, and Jeff Moss, the head writer. So I talked to them before the show even started about maybe we should all work together. And I ended up getting, getting hired at Sesame to work on the books and records first, rather than my doing them at Random House. Uh, and uh, Joe Raposo was a great composer. Uh, didn't need me to do that exactly, but he didn't know rock and roll very well, and he knew that I did. Mm -hmm. So he asked me if I wanted to try writing a little of that, and that's where Canada Hire came from. Mm -hmm. And uh, people liked it, so it went on from there. And, uh, like, I just picture a bunch of really amazing creative people that have a heart for teaching, just hanging out and, and getting this done. I mean, what was that like back in, in the seventies being on the cusp of that? You hit it. It was incredibly thrilling. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the people were so smart and so inspired to do something good but also we were having a time of our lives writing really crazy stuff mm -hmm. and having the Muppets perform it. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Uh, I mean, even the mediocre things that we wrote were great once Jim Henson and Frank Oz performed them. Yeah. So it was heaven. And 
the idea that we were having a ball or getting paid for it and helping people all at the same time, it just doesn't get any better than that. And whether it's Sesame Street or it's your, your books, your early readers, the Dr. Seuss world, why is it that story is so critical in this educational world and helping us learn? Well, I just think it's because people are interested in stories all the way back to pre-recorded history. That's the way people talk to each other, pass things on to each other. That's what we like doing. And actually, Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss, wrote The Cat in the Hat because uh, the novelist John Hersey challenged him in an article in Life Magazine to do so. And what he said is, one reason kids aren't learning to read is because the primers aren't very interesting. Why don't people like Dr. Seuss use the same words that we have to teach in primers and write good stories? And that's where The Cat in the Hat came from. Mm. Ted took the challenge. And uh, Sesame works because it's got so many great characters and funny things happen to them. Uh, if we just taught the letter sounds without that, I don't think kids would have liked the show anywhere nearly as much. Right. And, and so how do we, so that's, uh, that's why we like it. That's why it's, it's part of our DNA from the very beginning. How do we today tell better stories so that we can continue this, this, it's not even an art form necessarily. It's, it's life right? How do we continue to tell better stories? Well, I think it's the actual idea that Joan Gans Cooney had when she started Sesame Street is really a good lesson, which is that she got really creative people who were storytellers and writers and performers to work with the top teachers in the country. But she didn't let the writers tell the teachers how to teach, and she didn't let the the teachers tell the writers how to write. It, she didn't try to find writers who might know a little about education or to find educators who could write a little. She got the best of both and said, you guys have to work together or get out of here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and obviously the people who uh, didn't enjoy that process left of their own volition anyway. Mm -hmm. But the writers and teachers who enjoyed it ended up working together for years. and. Uh, that works. I think the teaching that doesn't work is because it, when it doesn't work, it's because the adults doing it aren't in touch with what the kids want and like and are interested in. Mm -hmm. If they can work on the kids' own terms but still teach what they need to teach, it works much, much better. So in, in those moments, where what comes first? The, the teaching plan or the stories like if i'm thinking about maybe like a writer's room almost yeah is is everybody working together just brainstorming a ton of stuff how does how does that work when you get a creative team together like that what comes first education or story or both uh both but the way it's worked at sesame is that at the beginning of each season and certainly at the beginning of the show itself even more so teachers and writers met about what they were going to do generally so there was a curriculum formed, which was really a bunch of little educational goals, things that children would know or understand at the end of the year. And then everything we wrote could be as crazy as we wanted, perhaps as crazy and silly and fun as possible, or at least something that would connect with the child emotionally. It doesn't always have to be funny, mm -hmm. but 
but all those things would advance one of those goals or more of those goals. And the idea that the producers had was at the end of the year, we would have written something about most of those goals. Yeah. So as a writer, I would look at those goals and say, here's a, here's a funny idea I have. Like one specific example, a song that I wrote that some people remember was called Letter B which was a parody of the Beatles' Let It Be. <laughs> but when I knew that I had to teach the letter B, that idea just came to me. And I said, oh, that'll be fun. And then the Muppets said, hey, we can actually build Beatles, little mm -hmm. bugs that sing and play guitars. <laughs> so we could make a pun even out of that, mm -hmm. but, you know, which the Beatles' name was a pun anyway. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we just doubled back and took the original word. So we, and once we had those, singing insects, we could write more Beatles songs like Hey Food instead of Hey Jude to talk about <laughs> nutrition. Cookie Monster helped them sing that. Oh. So it's kind of a process. Once, yeah. once you've started, you keep building on it. Like an and with the beginner books, it's the same way. You know, yeah. I knew that we're trying to teach certain words and we're trying to teach letter sounds. We're trying to teach, kid, teach kids how the whole process works. Mm -hmm. So I've written a beginner book recently called A Skunk uh, in my bunk that works that way. Uh, you know, that I was teaching rhyming words and made sure that the words were very simple. There are only a few words in the book, which is the way Ted Geisel did it all the way back at the beginning of beginner books. Mm -hmm. it, it feels like an, like an avalanche of creativity. Once you get well, it started, it just keeps building, huh? Yeah, and the main point is to have fun yourself. Yeah. If you're writing something you think is boring, I guarantee you the kids will think it's boring too. Yeah. And, and, it, and it feels like it can cross from kids to adults. I mean, we just, like I can picture now going back and reading kids' books, maybe with my kids. Of course, they're teenagers now, so they won't want that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I just, I, I picture it crossing generational lines so much and what an incredible legacy to leave whether you're talking about you know dr seuss or sesame or what you've written chris just what an incredible story there's not a question there i just i'm excited <laughs> well thank you me too uh thank you so much and you're absolutely right uh, you know it's uh what, what can i say i've been very lucky to to have the chance to work with all these amazing people yeah but i've had a lot of fun doing it yeah so if, if someone's listening to that and thinking, okay, I, I have an idea for a kid's book. I kind of want to do this thing. I feel creative. I mean, what kind of advice would you give to someone just kind of starting off in the storyteller's world? Well, obviously books don't have to teach something out of a curriculum to work. I mean, that's the way I've done it. And I, I've found it easier to get ideas that way. If you give me a blank piece of paper and say, write a book or a song, I, I'm not sure what I would do, but if you tell me, gee, we could sure use a, a song and we haven't had much reggae on the show, and wouldn't it be funny if Cookie Monster sang some reggae and we need a song about letter J desperately, then I know exactly what to go do. Yeah. And I can still be really silly doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think it might help anyone starting to write to start with what, what's something good that needs to be written. That's the way I do it. But if you have a strong story idea, you don't need to base it on something to teach at all. But you need to be true to the idea. And it's nice if there's a lesson or a moral involved. 
all of Dr. Seuss's books, including the ones that don't teach reading, do have those moral ideas in them, like the Lorax's, Lorax is about saving the environment, mm -hmm. or the Zaxxes coming together is about people not being able to re resolve conflicts. Mm -hmm. So we always had a moral, and I think that helped him write great stories. And so let me start with this one. What, do you, what is it about story that you love so much that you've been able to build a career out of it? What do you love about storytelling? Oh, man, I guess I just love getting an idea and saying, this is, in my case, this is a fun idea. This makes me laugh. Uh, I think it'll make other people laugh, too, and I can't wait till my friends see it. <laughs> I love collaborating, too. A, a, a lot of my work has been with other people at National Lampoon, which is another big part of my career. Yeah. I worked with Henry Beard, who helped start it, and whom I met because uh, he went to Harvard with my brother and we were friends all the way back. But we still write books together because we bounce ideas off each other and have fun together talking about it. We used to have lunch every Sunday and just throw ideas around. So that's, that collaboration is fun, but I also like people improving my ideas or bouncing ideas around and coming up with something better than any of us might have come up with. So a lot of my songs are collaborations too, but otherwise it's fun doing it yourself as well. Mm -hmm. uh, collaboration is part of the, the joy. Hmm. That makes sense. I love surrounding myself with great people that sharpen me or that challenge me or that bring it to the next level and I can be that same for others. So that's interesting. Um, so on that idea of you know, children's books, Sesame Street, National Lampoon, how do you switch between those? How, how, how is it for you, Chris, as a storyteller to go from writing a beginner's book to writing a book that is satirical and adult focused maybe? Well, this may sound silly, but <laughs> silly me, but the process is really very similar. I don't draw a big line there. Obviously what comes out has to respect who the audience is. If I'm writing for kids just beginning to read, I've got to keep making it simple. Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean the concepts have to be simple. And in the skunk in, the, in my bunk book, I have a duck in a truck uh, that gets stuck in the muck. And those are all words that rhyme and mm -hmm. are spelled the same way. Uh, so obviously that's my goal. But I still think a duck in a, driving a truck stuck in the muck is funny. Yeah. Uh, maybe I would try to get a slightly more sophisticated idea if I'm writing for adults. But actually, going back to what you were asking before, writing something that both adults and children will like can be very useful. Obviously, you want parents who are reading to kids to have a good time too, or they won't pick up the book as often. And Sesame Street was created at the beginning very much with that goal in mind. One reason we use so many parodies and rock and roll on Sesame Street is we want older kids and parents to watch with their, their young kids, if possible, or to at least not mind that it's playing. And if they talk about it afterward, research really shows that the kids learn much more because they have a second discussion about what they watched. Mm -hmm. um, and mm. so basically the process is more similar than you think. Actually, mm -hmm. a lot of National Lampoon people ended up working on Sesame Street as well or with the Muppets. Hmm. That's fascinating. That is so interesting to me. Um, gosh, 
there's so much, <laughs> so much to uncover. I, I really love this, Chris. Um, how, so if, if you've got all these different choices, all these different venues, writing for adults, writing for kids, as, as a storyteller, whether you're a composer and telling story through music or whatever it is, do you have a favorite platform? Do you prefer books over writing music or performing? You know, how, what platform do you prefer? Oh gosh, it's, I mean, I enjoy all of it. And mm. partly I actually enjoy the fact that there are more, there's more than one platform to write for because you don't get in a rut. I mean, if I've been writing nothing but books for four-year-olds uh, that had to have words that they could read in them for 40 or 50 years, maybe I'd say, you know, it's time to do something else once in a while. Right. But if you can do that every once in a while, it's always fresh. Yeah. But I guess if I had to only do one thing, it's an awful lot of fun writing songs and having the Muppets sing them. <laughs> Nothing I better. <laughs> I can't uh, say that I would, I'd hate to give that up. I, right. I don't have to give those things up. I like doing a little bit of everything. Yeah. That's incredible. And did I read it right? Over 300 songs that you've written or co-written for, uh, for Sesame Street? Sesame and, and the other shows that the workshop. Okay. okay. But over 200 for Sesame. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Um, so uh, on that note of, of creating, what is one of your biggest challenges that you face then as that writer? Oh, gosh, it's hard to say. I think keeping in mind that the kids have to get it is part, yeah. of, the, part of the lesson, though even the Sesame producers have had a great idea about that, too. You can write things that only the adults will get for that show, but the kids have to not even notice them. I mean, for example, the three-year-olds who heard the Letter B song I mentioned earlier might not have known about the Beatles. So it's important that they like that song, even, even if they don't know about the Beatles. Mm -hmm. They have to think the Letter B song is funny, and they have to learn something about the Letter B, and they have to think it's funny to watch insects playing guitar. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but if they know all that, then maybe it's okay that the adults say, oh, I see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, um, making sure that kids like it is always important. Making sure that anyone likes it is fun. I think probably one of my challenges is not being too esoteric. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. And especially as I get older, I tend to write things in that kids won't know anymore. Like I might put a radio or a phone booth in <laughs> and, and they might not recognize those things anymore. Sure. Yeah. So has, has that challenge evolved over the years? I mean, kids, we, we talk about how, you know, Oh, kids these days, I'm sure every generation does that, but we talk about how, how kids these days are pretty distracted. They're very yeah. electronically focused early on. They all want an app or whatever. They can swipe everything. You bet. Has that changed over the years? Is that is it more difficult now or is it just differently? It's difficult? different. I, okay. And it isn't all that different. I think you have to be conscious when you're writing. And I mentioned it just a minute ago. As someone who's been doing this for a while, I, I need to be conscious of, of making sure that I do things that kids today will relate to. But some stories are universal. A story about a cow doing something might not require us to have a swipe in it, you know, but, mm -hmm. but there's no harm in it. A, a famous book that uh, we feature in our show that I produced for many years called Between the Lions mm -hmm. for WGBH 
there's a, there's a book that we featured in that that's still very popular called Click Clack Moo, Cows the Type. And I realized uh, in later years when the show you ran that, that not all kids were familiar with typewriters anymore, but it's still a popular book. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the kind of anachronism that we have to begin to be careful about. Mm. It's still yeah. a great book, by the way, because the theme is universal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and our keys still do clack a little bit on my keyboards. Yeah, well, we wrote the clacks in, <laughs> in some cases, on a cell phone. There's a clicking sound that the keys right. make just because <laughs> people wanted it. But it, there's no reason for that otherwise, other than to make sure you know you, you click, you actually hit the, right. the key. That's funny. Technology. It's, it's amazing. How do you think some of that technology, let's, let's focus on social media. Has, has social media changed how you do what you've done for the last 40 years? I would say yes, uh, because I'm working on, on software for kids as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I think you need to be very conscious of, you know, when you can touch something and what happens. And there's a whole conversation that I never used to have when I was doing only books about, you know, will they understand this? Do they need help here? Uh, what happens if they touch that inadvertently? You, you have all kinds of if-then-else questions to mm -hmm. ask that you didn't have before. But it doesn't necessarily change how you tell the story. It gives you more options. It's fun to tell a story where you have choices. I love Choose Your Own, Own Adventure books years ago. Mm -hmm. You can do that on a computer much better or on a touchscreen device much more easily than having to turn to page 63 to see what happens. You know, nice. so yep. it gives us more tools, but it, it gives us more challenges too. I used to love those books. Absolutely love them. I had an, an idea. They were, they were amazing. I had an idea with a friend of mine to create that in video format somehow before YouTube was even a thing. You, you bet. That and would I, make sense. I never knew how to do it and now people are doing it. So it's great to see, but it's incredible. How do you think that side of, of technology then has changed what you do. You know, it used to be you'd create it for PBS, which would go to all these different stations across the country. Now you have access to all 7 billion people because I think every single person on the, on the planet has a cell phone. How That's right. You don't always know how to reach them though. Yeah. I right. mean, one great thing about Sesame street or between the lions is that, you know, every day millions of kids saw it. And, and now that's, not a given anymore. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids still might see it if they find the show. But when Sesame Street started, uh, PBS was just beginning. It was called NET then, mm. uh, National Educational Television. And there were only three other networks. <laughs> uh, so it was pretty easy to know that a lot of people would see it if we just put it there and people liked the first one. Mm -hmm. But now you've got hundreds of cable channels and all those uh, streaming opportunities. It's a lot harder to get noticed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a new challenge. It's not only how do you create something good, but then how do you, do you let people know about it? Absolutely. And I'm not sure that we've all figured that out yet. Even, but, even at your level of career, where you've been doing it for so long with so many amazing collaborators, do you still face that worry that people aren't going to see your work? I'll call it a challenge. Uh, yeah. Mm. And even Sesame Street has to think about it. You know, that, that it's not a given that parents are going to tune it in. Also, 
the, the universe of parents has changed. When Sesame Street started, there were a lot more stay-at-home parents than there are now. Now, most families, even if there are two parents, have both parents working a lot of the time. You have latchkey kids. You have kids with longer hours in school. Every, everything has changed. But the actual challenge, going back to where we started, of writing something that kids will like and making up characters that kids will like and want to see again, that's somewhat the same. It's just that how we get it there is, is what's changing. And we actually have more tools if we're on a medium that can use them. As you just said, uh, choose your own adventure where you can actually push buttons to change things yeah. uh, and see it all in video would be great. Yeah. And, and now you can actually do it. The question is, how do we make sure that people get it? So I, I don't even know if there's a difference between these two um, ways of telling a, a childhood story, but I think about the difference between, let's say, like Disney Pixar animation and Muppets, real yeah. life Muppets, puppeteers. How do you see them differently? It looks, from what I can tell, maybe I'm wrong here, you've worked mostly with, with puppeteers, right? Yeah, so don't forget that we wrote lots of animated bits for all these shows. A lot That's of the stories are animated. Yeah. But I haven't worked much in long form animation. Mm -hmm. But the process is not, as a writer, is not necessarily that different, except that just with, as you can with different platforms, there are different, different things you can and can't do. Uh, like you really wouldn't think of, uh, you know, having puppets do an extremely complicated thing like go to the airport, get on a plane, fly somewhere, get out, and then meet a monster and have a wrestling match with it. Though, as I say that, I can imagine how the Muppets would do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in animation, of course, anything is possible. Hmm. You can draw the most complicated scene if you have the money and time. Mm -hmm. Whereas having a thousand puppets in a scene can be complex. But Jim Henson was brilliant at getting around those things. But I would probably write a different scenario for puppets than I might for TV, though there's a lot of overlap, I mean, yeah. for animation. And in the book, you can do everything you can do in animation, but you can't animate it. In fact, one of the projects that our company, Serious Thinking, is doing is an animated dictionary. And that's, that has possibilities that a still pictured book dictionary does not have. Mm -hmm. How would you draw the picture of the word slowly, for example? Mm -hmm. It's hard. You might draw a turtle and a snail, but the kids have to know they move slowly or they won't get it. Hey, but hey. in an animation, you can have them moving slowly. Mm -hmm. So that animated picture of slowly works better than a still picture would. And verbs that work that way too. It's easier to animate a verb than to draw it. Right. Um, so depending what your palette is, you, you can do different things. Yeah. Oh, so much fun. I love where, where we're going with technology and, and education and everything. It is incredibly powerful. You bet. So Chris, what is, you've had, wow, again, heck of a career, uh, amazing stuff still happening to you, collaboration, wonderful, you know, wonderful name dropping moments <laughs> of, yeah. of people in our, in, our, in our fabric of society. What is a, an example of a life-changing story, either that you have consumed or that's happened to you? Like, what does a life-changing story look like for Christopher Surf? 
You mean one that I might have encountered uh, in, in fiction or not? Sure. Not? I mean, just if I, if I, when I say the term life-changing story, what does that bring up for you? Oh, it's so many things I don't know where to go. <laughs> uh, you know, just the story of, of what, how people have made their careers uh, doing creative things have inspired me. So that's nonfiction in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and or reading, reading nonfiction might have inspired me to do things. Learning about how computers work was life changing for me mm. just because I realized, wow, this is going back to the 1970s and 80s now. Wow, this is a whole new medium to play with. Uh, certainly, I had the privilege of working with my mom and Dr. Seuss as they made up beginner books when I was in college and just getting out. And I never would have ended up at Sesame Street if that hadn't happened. So seeing how Ted Geisel would actually storyboard a book, like he would storyboard animation, which was where his career came from. Mm. That was mind boggling for me, because I realized that on every page, he wanted something to be happening. And he didn't just ever want to show two people talking, a rule that he broke a few times, but not often, because he wanted something to be happening on that page. Even in Green Eggs and Ham, where, where they're just saying, do you like Green Eggs and Ham? He would say, do you like them with something? And there'd be a crazy picture of Sam I Am holding up eggs with some kind of crazy machine holding the plate. So he, and he always wanted the picture to explain what the text said. That's the way that kids would learn to read without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. is that storytelling? I guess it is. And I learned from that. But just reading stories that inspired me uh, to want to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Listening to rock and roll songs that were well written uh, or well played and saying, boy, I love that he did that or she did that or they did that. I'd like to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the songwriting I've done for Sesame Street would be combining the educational goal and a simple lyric uh, with, wow, I love that song I just heard. How did they make those chords work? I wonder if I could do something like that for my Sesame Street song, even though I don't have to. I would just like to. Yeah. So, so much you're just expanding horizons all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's incredible. So, it sounds like you pull inspiration from basically everywhere, huh, Chris? I think so. And I hope yeah. I can inspire other folks too. Absolutely. So as you, as you look, I don't mean this to sound like super retrospective, like you're retiring by any means, but as well, you, I'm not, but <laughs> right, I'm right. Willing to, I'm willing to look back. I have to. Yeah. What, have there been moments during this career where you kind of look around and pinch yourself like, man, I've really made it. What do those moments look like? Well, I wouldn't say I've made it. I don't have that thought because mm -hmm. I always think I haven't made it. There's more I I should have done or could be doing. Sure. But I certainly pinch myself all the time and realize how incredibly lucky I've been. I mean, I was born into a publishing family, which certainly I would be kidding myself if I said that didn't help. I did it all on my own talent. I hope I had the talent to take advantage of that, hmm. which I think we all need to do. We, we all have good and bad luck. Some of us have more good luck than others, but when we have it, we have to take advantage of it. That's up to us. But I've been spectacularly lucky beyond that. Uh, for example, uh, 
I went in the army years ago uh, and I was on the bus going to basic training, sitting next to a guy that I had never met before, whose name was Jeff Moss. Jeff was a writer on Captain Kangaroo, and he became the head writer of Sesame Street before it started. Now, if I hadn't been on that bus with Jeff, who became my good friend, would I be at Sesame Street? I don't know, maybe, maybe yes, but that sure helped. So that was just blind good luck. Mm -hmm. I went to Harvard with Joe Raposo, and I didn't go to Sesame Street to write songs, but Joe knew that I could. That's pure luck. Mm -hmm. But then I had to write a song they liked when they let me go. <laughs> but yeah, nonetheless, yeah. I would never have had that chance to write songs for Sesame if I hadn't been hired to work on books and records and products for Sesame. So I pinch myself every day. And what if Jim Henson weren't part of Sesame Street? And I never would have worked with the Muppets and done other things with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would never have learned how to do it. If I hadn't made work with Joe on music at Sesame, I wouldn't have learned how to do recording sessions. Mm -hmm. You know, so the trick is to try to make everything fit into your life experience. And the more things you can do, the more things that you get a chance to do. Mm -hmm. And, and on that note, it sounds like I, and part of what I hear too is being well-rounded as a storyteller, but also just as a human being in general. I mean, you mentioned being in the army, you mentioned taking care of children and working for PBS. And I feel like at our moment in our history right now, we, we live, I've started calling it the tyranny of or. You either are this or you are that. Oh man, I love that word, the tyranny, that phrase. Yeah. My whole life uh, has been about being a generalist. Mm -hmm. My dad taught me that too. Um, he was a publisher. He was a TV panelist on What's My Line. And some authors and publishers would, would criticize him for being on What's My Line, the old panel show. They'd say, mm -hmm. it's not serious. You're supposed to be a serious publisher. Well, imagine if people had said to Dr. Seuss, write only serious books. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can't help people learn to read. And people did say that. And that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. But my dad knew that going on the TV show not only was fun and made him enjoy his life more, but it also helped sell the books because he could talk about when he was introduced on the panel show, they would say, Bennett Surf, who just published John O'Hara's new book of short stories, and John O'Hara's book would sell more as a result. <laughs> so he made everything work together, and I learned to do that. Uh, you know, I basically don't see myself as having 17 careers. They're all the same one. They're writing and recording and publishing and writing for different medias and producing for different medias, media. And uh, you have more fun that way and you have more employment opportunities too. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. <clears throat> and it's such a, a great, I mean, gosh, even beyond the career side of it, it's such a great way to live as far as taking what you can and learning it from different areas. And just like you said, Chris, being happy and enjoying yeah. what's, what's given to you. And le learning not just from different areas, but learning from all the people you meet in those areas. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about working at Sesame Workshop all those years is that we were working in, in different media uh, all the time. We, 
we were doing the TV show mainly, or the TV shows, but we were also, even within that, working with puppets and animation and live action. But beyond that, we were making records, we were publishing books, and we quickly realized that the same people had things to contribute to all those things. If you can write a great script for kids, why shouldn't you be able to write a great book for kids too, with a little bit of advice? And also the record is just the same thing without the pictures. So that you just have to rewrite the TV script so the kids can imagine what you can't show them. Mm -hmm. um, and all of us uh, broadened our horizons by doing that. And so many companies nowadays are talking about, in the marketing world anyway, which is where I come from, being a, a publisher, being the Netflix of your industry or whatever, right? Um, Wistia is one of those that does that with their show called Brandwagon. And yeah. And, and, but you were doing this back in the 70s and 80s where, like you said, Chris, you, you had the TV show, but you were creating books and records and shows within the show. And that's that, right. That brand of Sesame Workshop became so much more than just just air quotes a tv show well it was just yeah it was called the children's tv workshop originally and they changed it to sesame because that brand became so overwhelming mm -hmm. but they still talk about the 51st imagine we're 50 years old on that show now they talk about the 50th of the 51st experimental season of sesame just because it's always been an experiment mm -hmm. but what you're doing is a perfect example podcasts didn't exist when it was radio is that a new medium Yes, but not really. This is right. a radio show. You're just putting it somewhere else. Yeah. You have many more places to put it than you used to, but you also have the problem of making sure somebody hears it. Mm -hmm. Music has changed that way too. When there was a top 40, and that's the only songs you ever heard, then if you happen to have a top 40 hit, everybody knew your song. But think of all the thousands of people who wrote the, the next 10,000 songs that weren't in the top 40. Now you have a much better chance to get it out there, but you have a much smaller chance of being in the top 40. <laughs> Maybe it's not smaller, but there's a lot more competition now. Right. Absolutely. Chris, this is so much fun. I am so glad you were able to do this. I want to, I want to, I want to propose my last question here in a moment and I'm curious to see where this goes. Um, but I want to make sure everybody has a chance to connect with you. Your new book just came out, a skunk in my bunk. Um, you yeah, got, that's the book for beginning readers, just to make it clear. Yep, so yeah. If you're 60 and don't have get any kids in your life, you might not like it, but I hope you would because <laughs> it's meant to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> like all the things we've been talking about. Absolutely. So, where's the best place to connect with you? Where do you send people? Well, uh, I guess uh, a few places. I have a Twitter account at Chris Surf. Um, C-H-R-I-S-E-R-F, that's a good place. Uh, I have a Facebook page, um, but you know, whether I'll see everything that I'm there, but I'm happy to connect to people I know. I don't wanna necessarily connect with people that I don't know, but mm -hmm. I could if you have something interesting and we have something in common. And then there's a website for our company, which is uh, Serious Thinking, spelled like the star, S-I-R-I-U-S-T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G.com. It's not as robust a website as I'd like, but it's a way. Okay. Or the book is available anywhere or on Amazon. Okay. So there's a lot of different places. Excellent. And I'll link to those in the show notes. Make sure everybody can connect with you uh, or it's appropriate. So Chris, okay. it, you, you were born into this life of storyteller, but if someone were to say to you, to you 
today. You can no longer be a storyteller tomorrow. You've got to find something else to do. You, you can't do the storytelling life. What would your last story be that you'd want to, to leave oh, behind? That is a big question. Uh, I've thought about writing a memoir, I guess, and things like that. But I always don't because A, it keeps me from doing all the storytelling that I'd rather do. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the little, I love doing these little pieces and satiric pieces, which we didn't talk about today. But I've done a lot of silly books for adults with Henry Beard and others. And I love doing all that. But another reason I haven't done a memoir is I love collaborating and being friends with people. And I don't think people would write it, like to read a memoir where I have nothing but happy things to say. They want to know the dark side, too. And I basically don't want to make enemies by telling it. There isn't much of a dark side anyway. Uh, yeah. I have a very rich and wonderful life and a wonderful wife, Catherine, who's a writer, too. And I love sharing her life collaboratively as well. Hmm. So I've been extraordinarily lucky. Absolutely. So the dark side, how bad is Kermit to work with? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, um. he can. <laughs> he can well, <laughs> Kelly Monster can get pretty depressed. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Excellent. Chris, well, thank you so and much Grover, again. Look at all the trouble Grover gets himself into. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would love to hang out with Grover just to see what kind of trouble I can get into with him. Well, actually, if I can say one last thing that's fun, Frank Oz. Frank Oz created a lot of characters for Sesame that are much more neurotic than the other ones. I mean, like Bert or Cookie Monster or Grover, mm-hmm. they, they have a lot of richness that makes it a lot of fun to write for them as well. You know, it's interesting because there is, I mean, as, as kids, we just see them as all these fun things. But as adults, we, we can see those characteristics. I guess, I mean, as a writer, did you have favorite characters to write for that took you deeper? Well, two, that's two questions. <laughs> Our favorite characters to write for are the ones, well, Cookie Monster, who is not very deep. He just loves, he's just pure id. But I, I loved writing for him because he could get you out of any bit you couldn't write your way out of. He could just eat everything if you can't think of another way to end it. But having said that, uh, I think Grover is fun to write for because he's so eager to please. Uh, and... Uh, Bert and Ernie were always fun to write for, and Ernie always gets the best of him, which mm-hmm. makes Bert kind of a fun, sad character, slightly mm-hmm. sad to write for. But you never wanted to hurt him too badly. Right. And uh, having him get stuck with a bunch of sheep in his bed when he's trying to go to sleep <laughs> can be fun, and I've gone there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it, Chris. So much fun. Uh, thank you again for being a part of the Storytellers Network, my friend. Oh, it's been great, Dan. Thank you so much for letting me me visit you. Once again, thank you so much, Chris. Christopher Surf, author, puppeteer, composer, lyricist. So much fun. I'm so blessed to have him on my show. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out back to Tish Robbie as well for connecting us. So she was back on, on episode 100. So just back here in the season. So thank you, Tish. So Chris, a pleasure. Connect with Chris Surf at all of the links in the show notes, website, social media, all that kind of stuff. And if you enjoyed the episode and you've got somebody in your life that enjoyed Sesame Street, Share this episode with them, would you? Send it to them in, in Messenger. Send them in, the, in, your, in your DMs on Twitter. Send them an email. Just tell them about it. Check out the storytellersnetwork.com and go find Chris Surf. I appreciate you telling folks about it. And if you really loved it, leave a rating or a written review in your podcast player of choice, especially Apple, because that's just as easy to do. So Apple Podcasts where we can do that. 
And if you want to share your story with me, please visit thestorytellersnetwork.com to the contact page or just email me, dan at thestorytellersnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you. And uh, hey, until next time, here's to telling our stories and having those stories to tell. Cheers. Thank you.